As many of you know, I have the great privilege of being a chaplain in the United States Air Force, which includes organizing and facilitating trainings to make sure airmen are healthy, spiritually, emotionally, and relationally, particularly with their wife and their kids. So this past weekend, I led a couple's night out event in order to present the five love languages to 26 couples. Why is that necessary? Well, because men and women get deployed for six months to a year at a time. So husbands, wives, fathers, mothers are away from their spouse and their kids for a long period of time. And if family relationships aren't strong, then families struggle. And airmen can't focus on protecting the American people against enemies, foreign and domestic. So deployments, as you can imagine, are very difficult. Which is also why reunions are so great. Now, I don't know about you, but I absolutely love those videos where soldiers come home from war and they surprise their kids. Maybe at a sporting event or at school or at the airport. When the dad suddenly comes around the corner and he surprises his family. Well, I got to experience that in person. Because my religious affairs airman just got back from a six-month deployment. So I was part of the reunion with his family. And it was absolutely wonderful to see the eager anticipation, watching the clock, waiting for him to walk around the corner, and then to see it happen. The kids light up, the wife goes running, right? There's big hugs all around. It was awesome. And every time, without exception, right? I know that I'm this big, strong guy, but tears immediately to my eyes because there's such joy, such excitement just to have their husband and father back and to be in his presence again. It just doesn't get better than that. But most recently, I've been thinking about those events from the dad's perspective and how those events require tons of planning and massive organization just to pull it off. And how the dad's just as excited to be with his wife and kids as the wife and kids are to be with his dad. So despite the separation and the reality of a war he's been planning for months and waiting with eager anticipation just to be present with his wife and his kids. Now just think about those ideas in light of our loving heavenly father. I mean, do you realize the God of heaven longs to be with his sons and his daughters, just like an airman wants to be with his kids? And the Lord Jesus deeply desires to be present with his bride, the church, for all eternity. So the God of all creation wants to be with us, dwelling in our midst where he will be our God and we will be his people. Because God's presence is on full display this morning. God dwelling in the presence of his people. That even though we've been separated because of a spiritual war, the reality of our own sin, he's made a way through the death of his son so that sinful, wicked people can dwell in the presence of a holy God, through the single sacrifice of Christ and his atoning work on the cross so that our guilt can be removed and God's wrath can be averted and we can be liberated, freed up to serve the living God. So if you would, open your Bibles with me to Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9 is on page 1005 if you're using one of the Bibles in the chairs in front of you. The outline is right there in the bulletin, gray insert, title of my sermon, God's Presence, God's Presence Anticipated, God's Presence Realized, God's Presence Applied. As you're turning, let me remind you that the author of Hebrews has already declared that Jesus is greater than the angels, Moses, and the Old Testament priests. 
And in chapter 7, that Jesus is a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek, which means that Jesus is eternal. Last week, he argued that Jesus is the only priest that we need because he promises to perfect for all time those who draw near to God through him. But this morning, he's going to focus in on the sacrifice itself and how it's infinitely better because it actually brings us into God's presence, which is radically different than the first covenant, which failed miserably. So if you would, go ahead and follow along as I read Hebrews chapter 9, verses 1 to 10. The author says, Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent or a tabernacle was prepared. The first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of presence, it's called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail." These preparations, having thus been made, the priest goes regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. But into the second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened. As long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age, according to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifice are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. So the author starts out by looking back again at the first covenant. And the reality that in Exodus 25, the Lord provided Moses with very specific instructions on how to build the tabernacle, including what furniture to have and what sacrifices to offer. I want to ask you, why did God make Moses build the tabernacle? What was the reason? What was the purpose for the tabernacle? Do you remember? God said, and I quote Exodus 25, 8, and let them build me a sanctuary, a tabernacle, so that I may dwell in their midst. So the tabernacle has everything to do with God's presence. Now let that just sink in. Because the God of all creation, the God of heaven and earth who created all things, wants to dwell with his people. A people who, by the way, are utterly sinful. So he gives them, A, a place of worship, and he gives them, B, a process of worship, which highlights that God is holy, set apart, the most holy place, and that man is sinful. Wickedly, wretchedly sinful. So a sacrifice must be made. Meaning blood must be shed in order for them to dwell in God's presence. So let's start by looking at A, the place of worship. And to do this, I thought a picture would be helpful. So here we go. Because verses 1 to 5 literally take us from the court of the tabernacle into the holy place and into the most holy place. There's a progression there. So this is the tabernacle. We'll zoom in on the tabernacle. In the tabernacle right here, verse 2 lists the lampstand. Here's the table. Here's the bread of presence. Then we go to verse 3 in your text, and it moves you towards out of the holy place into the most holy place highlighting 
the altar of incense. Then you go behind the second curtain, and there's the Ark of the Covenant. All right, so here we're zooming in on the Ark of the Covenant, and we're told, verses 4 to 5, golden, all sides are gold, with a golden urn of manna inside, along with Aaron's staff and the tablets of the Ten Commandments. And above the ark, right, are the cherubim overshadowing the mercy seat. Here's the mercy seat. So I think it's just helpful to be able to visualize the tabernacle and to have that image in your mind. Why is that helpful? Well, look at verse 1. Verse 1 says that even the first covenant had an earthly place of holiness, So this is the place that God designed to be the most holy place, the holy of holies, where God dwells and is most present. So it's designed to be the throne room of the king of the universe, which is why scripture refers to God as the king enthroned above the cherubim and the ark as his footstool. And just think about all that we learn from the ark of the covenant. Because inside the Ark of the Covenant are the Ten Commandments, which means God expects his people to obey his law. So that's how we're to relate to him, because he's the king, high and lifted up, majestic and mighty. But God is also merciful. I mean, how awesome is it that not only does the Ark of the Covenant contain the Ten Commandments showing us that God's people must obey God's law, but that it's covered by the mercy seat, demonstrating that God has graciously made a way for his law-breaking, sinful people to be dealt with through mercy instead of condemnation, which brings us to be the process of worship. Because verse 6 tells us that the priests would go regularly into the holy place performing their ritual duties But into the second, the Holy of Holies, they would only go once a year. And notice, they only go once a year and not without blood, which the priest offered first for his own sins, then for the sins of the people. So only once a year could one priest go into God's presence. And what did he do? While he was there, he sprinkled blood all over the mercy seat because the people had broken God's law. So they were constantly pleading for mercy, for grace, for the forgiveness of sin, for God's wrath to be averted and for reconciliation to take place between God and his people. Verses 8 to 10, give us the upshot. The author says, by this the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic, or I believe a better translation in the NIV is illustrative. So it's an illustration for the present age. Because according to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper but only deal with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body until, until what? Until the time of reformation. So the whole point of the first covenant is to show that God is absolutely holy, that man is sinful, and yet God deeply desires to dwell in the midst of his people. He wants to be their God, and he wants for them to be his people, which requires a sacrifice. Blood must be shed because the central crisis in the history of mankind, as we can see, is that we need to have the guilt of our sins removed and the wrath of God averted. But the old covenant is not sufficient to do it because it only cleanses the outer and the external. When what's required is that our conscience be cleansed, our sins be atoned for, and the guilt be gone so that God's wrath can be averted. But the old covenant is not sufficient. That's why verse 9 says, the sacrifices offered not only on the day of atonement, but on any day cannot perfect the conscience 
of the worshiper. So they're not sufficient to bring us into God's presence. Not fully and finally. But get this. It was God's design to show us that through the work of the Spirit by letting those sacrifices take place over and over and over again, literally over the course of thousands of years so that we can feel the utter weight of our sin, so that we can feel the uncleansable guilt and be longing for something better. What the author calls the time of reformation, which was inaugurated with the first coming of Christ. But let me just pause. Because the old covenant is so instructive in helping us realize just how holy God really is and just how sinful we really are. I'm wondering if you feel the weight of that this morning. He's in the Holy of Holies. Only one person, one time a year, he's that set apart. You cannot be in his presence because God is that holy. Do you feel the weight of his holiness? Which should cause you to feel the weight of your sinfulness. God is infinitely holy. And we are wretchedly sinful. There's no way to enter or dwell in God's presence on our own accord. Even the high priest on the day of atonement would go into the Holy of Holies with bells on his feet and a rope around his waist. Because God is holy. And he cannot tolerate sin. And man is wretchedly sinful. So God gave us the old covenant so that we might feel the utter weight of our sin. We don't love God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. We don't prioritize God above everything else. Let's be honest this morning. On your to-do list for this afternoon, do you have listed number one, time with God? Do you sit down and pray without looking at your watch? Do you start praying and then think about your to-do list? I start praying and I think, I got a lot to do. <laughs> That's... We don't love him like we should. We don't prioritize him above everything else. We don't represent him rightly. We don't think about him accurately. We don't speak in such a way that honors him. I'm just wondering if you feel the weight of that. The guilt of that. The shame of that this morning. The old covenant is purposeful. It should cause us to long for a better priest and a once-for-all sacrifice. Because apart from Christ, you are dead in your sin. You know, I'm not sure if you've seen the t-shirt, but it says in small print, so you have to get really close to the t-shirt, I'm the wretch in the song. You know that t-shirt? Right, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Here's what I'm trying to say. Layman's terms. You should buy the shirt. That's what I'm saying. You're the wretch in this song. And it's so good to know that, to feel that, because it helps us to appreciate what Christ accomplished all the more. Which brings us to number two, God's presence realized I want to pick it up in verse 8. We're going to focus on 11 to 14, but I want you to feel it coming in. Verse 8. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the Holy of Holies is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing. 
which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, Then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctified for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Notice the but. Notice the but at the start of verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come. So the whole point of the but is that there's an incredibly significant contrast between the old covenant and the new covenant. Because the old covenant was created by God, set up and established until what? Until the time of reformation. But now it's kicked off with the coming of Christ through his sacrifice and his atoning blood being shed for our redemption. So God's presence anticipated, that's the old covenant, but now God's presence realized in the new covenant, which also means redemption anticipated, old covenant, but now a redemption accomplished. How? Through a better tabernacle, a better sacrifice, and an infinitely better outcome. Let's start with number one, the better tabernacle. We already know the purpose of the tabernacle. It's the place where God dwells with his people. It represents the presence of God. Verse 11 says, Jesus entered the greater and more perfect tent, the more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is not of this creation. So Jesus doesn't enter the earthly, physical Old Testament tabernacle, but instead he enters directly into God's presence. Just like we were told last week, Hebrews 8, 5, that the earthly tabernacle is patterned after the heavenly tabernacle, which is the very presence of God. And how does Christ do that? Verse 12, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood. So Jesus' death on the cross was number two, an infinitely better sacrifice. Because it does so much more than just cleanse the outside and the physical like the Old Testament sacrifices with their ritual purifications, right? Verse 12 says regulations for the body. Verse 13 says purification of the flesh. So he's talking about cleansings and purifications that that only cleanse the outside of a person. So the physical and the external. But not the inner crevices of the heart. So how much more? Verse 14 Will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, notice what does he accomplish? He purifies our conscience, the inner crevices of our hearts from dead works so that we might serve the living God. So Christ's better sacrifice has everything to do with the internal and spiritual rather than the external and the physical. And don't miss the connection back to verse 9. The old covenant sacrifices offered even on the day of atonement could not perfect or cleanse or purify the conscience. They couldn't remove the guilt of sin from the worshiper. But because of Christ's death on the cross, a better sacrifice offering better blood in the better tabernacle of God's presence, he's able to purify our conscience He's able to perfect, to cleanse, to remove the guilt of sin. He's able to purify our conscience, the inner crevices of our hearts from dead works. What are dead works? Dead works are the ways in which we try to earn ourselves a place with God. So he cleanses our conscience perfectly. He cleanses our conscience finally and fully. 
What's the purpose? So that we might serve, not dead works, but the living, eternal, almighty, and holy God. Do you see? That's the glory of Christ's better sacrifice, which brings about, number three, a better outcome. What do I mean by that? Well, look again at verse 12. That Christ entered once for all into the holy places of God's presence, not by means of the old covenant, the blood of goats and calves, but by means of Christ's own blood, thus securing. Look at this. This is incredible. Thus securing an eternal redemption. So the time of reformation absolutely happened when Christ came and willingly shed his own blood. And by doing so, achieved what the Old Testament sacrifices could never, ever possibly achieve. That is, most fundamentally, most centrally, most essentially, the taking away of sin. Which is the, whole, the author's whole point moving forward. Skip with me through a couple verses. Look at 9.22. I just want you to see how clear it is that he's talking about the removal of sin. Hebrews 9.22, that without the shedding of blood, there is no what? Forgiveness of sins. 9.26, but Christ appeared once for all at the end of the age. Why? To put away sin. Hebrews 9.28, Christ was offered up once for all. Why? To bear the sins of the many. So the whole point of his sacrifice on the cross and the shedding of his blood was to take away the guilt of sin. And to avert the wrath of God. Which means Christ's better sacrifice in the better temple is what secured, locked down, our eternal redemption. I just think for a moment about how absolutely incredible that really is. Redemption means, by definition, to buy something back. So by Christ's single sacrifice on the cross for our sin, his broken body, his shed blood, we are eternally bought back, purchased, restored to God. So we are eternally liberated from sin. We are eternally cleansed from guilt. We are eternally purified from shame. We are eternally washed whiter than snow and eternally reconciled to God for all eternity. And there is absolutely an already not yet component to this eternal redemption. You can feel that every day. That's why verse 28 says, So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of the many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who eagerly wait for him. So Christ's sacrifice inaugurates, kicks off our eternal redemption. But God promises that it will only get better when the Lord Jesus returns. And Hebrews 9.12 says, Christ secured it. So it's eternally unchanging. A sure and steady anchor for our souls. That nothing will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is ours in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now do you understand? The blood of bulls and goats can never do that. The priests could never do that. The day of atonement could never do that. Could never accomplish that. So no matter how many sacrifices were made, no matter how much blood was shed, no matter how many priests ran around like chickens with their heads cut off, constantly in motion, continually offering the blood of bulls and goats, they could never, ever, Purify the conscience, cleanse the sinner, remove the guilt, or avert God's wrath. Never. But Christ can. And Christ has. 
because he's the son of God. He's the eternal high priest who is of infinite value. And therefore, his sacrifice was of infinite worth. So when God passes over sins for Christ's sake, he is just in doing so. Which means God does not take sin lightly. That's not what's happening here. He doesn't just sweep it under the rug of the universe. But instead remains righteous in his forgiveness of sin. Because he requires an infinite payment to be made. But that infinite payment has been made in Christ. That's what Hebrews 9.12 says. That by his blood, he secures our eternal redemption. You have to grab a hold of this idea. That millions upon millions upon millions of hell-deserving, wrath-requiring, judgment-demanding sinners with their trillion upon trillion upon trillions of sins, iniquities, and transgressions are fully and finally and eternally redeemed by this once for all single sacrificial death of the Lord Jesus on the cross. Could we ever possibly make too much of the cross. You know, why do you talk about the cross so much at your church? Why do you talk about the blood of Jesus? That's kind of weird. Blood, 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 cross, cross, cross. (laughs) We can't possibly make too much of his once for all single sacrifice on the cross. Oh, I want you to bask in the glory of the eternal redemption. You bought back to God that he has accomplished. Christ secured it for you. If you are in Christ for all eternity, it's an eternal redemption. So the one thing in the universe that could damn his people is no more. Namely, the guilt of unforgiven sin. So Satan can't damn us. Cancer can't damn us. Bankruptcy can't damn us. Pick the worst sin you've ever committed. It cannot damn you. Only one thing can damn a person, and one thing only, and that's the guilt of unforgiven sin. And that's no more for those who are in Christ. So all the enemies of Christ can rage against you. They can attack you. They can harass you. They can slander you, shame you, and even kill you. But they can't damn you. That war has been won at the cross. So Christ disarmed the one damning weapon the devil could use against us. That is the guilt of unforgiven sin. But in Christ, no more. Now, just think about the original audience because persecution is coming. Friends lit up in flames, family chased down and eaten by animals, members killed in the Colosseum. But not one of those acts, not one scathing word 
from the emperor can damn them. Because the worst things have already been said about you at the cross. And each word of condemnation has already been covered by the precious, sufficient, infinitely valuable blood of Christ. Let me just ask, do you believe that? Do you believe that this morning? There's no other way to be forgiven of your sin. There's no other way to have your conscience cleansed. There's no other way to be reconciled to God or experience eternal redemption. Jesus is the only way of salvation. Because it's only in Jesus that this glorious redemption was accomplished. So I appeal to you, repent and believe in Jesus and delight yourself in the cross every single moment of your life. Because Jesus paid it all. No more. Which brings us to be redemption applied. Follow along as I read verses 15 to 22. Therefore, he, Jesus, is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved... The death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So verse 15 says that Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant. So that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. So an eternal redemption... That includes an internal inheritance. And what's the reason for that? The author says, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the sins committed under the first covenant. So how does Jesus mediate the new covenant? Well, he told us on the night in which he was betrayed. You remember, he gathered his disciples together in order to celebrate the Passover meal, but nothing was declared that even came close to the Passover meal or its celebration. Instead, Luke twenty two twenty tells us that Jesus broke the bread and said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Then he took the wine and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. So for Jesus to be the mediator of the new covenant, it has to be sealed in his blood. That's the author's entire point from verse 16 to 22, that not even the first covenant was established and ratified without the shedding of blood. Verse 19 highlights that when Moses declared the covenant to the people, Exodus 24, and the people agreed, we will do all that the Lord has commanded. At that point, everything was sprinkled with blood. The altar, the people, the tent, the vessels, even the book of the covenant, all of it. Because the blood inaugurates, it seals and confirms the covenant which of course requires death, hence the illustration, verses 16 to 17. The author argues that the same is absolutely true in a person's last will and testament. So when does a will go into effect? Not until the person dies. So the first covenant is no different than a person's last will and testament, and therefore it should not surprise us that the new covenant is no different than both of them. Because verse 22 says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So Jesus had to die. His blood had to be shed in order for guilt to be removed and God's wrath 
averted and for Jesus to actually be the mediator of the new covenant. So we should have seen this coming. That's what he's saying. But praise God, Jesus did die. His body was broken. His blood was shed. And as a result, all those who repent and believe in him are the recipients of some glorious promises. Verse 15 says, he's the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the internal inheritance. Don't you just love how many times the word eternal has come up in our passage? We have an eternal redemption. Verse 12, through the eternal spirit. Verse 14, so that we might receive an eternal inheritance. Verse 16, all of the eternalies are accomplished through one sacrifice. Jesus' death on the cross, the blood of Christ. Now, as we move to number three, God's presence applied, I want to ask you a very simple question. What do you think the eternal inheritance includes? I mean, the whole argument here is that a last will and testament doesn't come into play until a death has taken place. Well, a death has taken place. Christ died. Which means everyone who believes in Jesus receives an inheritance. But what exactly is that inheritance? Well, it's a lot of things, isn't it? You could even say it's everything. Ephesians 1.3 says that in Christ we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So in Christ, we have already been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, and yet we're obviously not yet in heaven. So there will be even more spiritual blessings in the future. All is a part of our eternal inheritance. But if you had to choose right now, what's the greatest, deepest, highest, most satisfying blessing of the eternal inheritance. If you had to choose, what would it be? Well, Hebrews 9.15 gives us a hint by linking it to the promises of the new covenant, which the author of Hebrews just quoted Hebrews chapter 8. Look at Hebrews chapter 8, verse 10. God says, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Verse 12, because I will be merciful towards their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. Make the connection. The two promises listed in verse 10 are both grounded on the guilt-removing, wrath-averting death of Jesus. Because it's only through the sacrifice of Jesus, the blood of Christ, that God can remember our sins no more. But as a result, what does the new covenant promise as the greatest blessing of our eternal inheritance? It promises we get God himself. He will be our God. And we will be his people. Now just think about that. That when there is no more guilt for sin. And there is no more wrath to fear. What do you think it looks like to have God as your God? I mean when those two things are out of the way. No longer to be dealt with. What does it mean for God to be our God and for us to be his people? It means absolutely everything. Because all that God is and all that God does, now that you're in Christ, is for you and not against you. So it means there's no longer a wrathful God to be feared but a loving 
heavenly Father who's at work in your life and who longs to be with you. Just like an airman coming home from war who longs to be with his wife and kids, carefully planning, putting everything, all the specifics in place just to be in their presence. God has done that for his people. I mean, all of this, the old covenant and the new covenant is the work of the eternal spirit for your eternal redemption with the promises of this glorious eternal inheritance and the promises of the new covenant. And we're only at the already part of the already not yet. But it was all his plan, his idea, him orchestrating all of history with all the details just so that you and I, the wretches in the song, can be in his presence for all eternity. How should we respond? We should be absolutely overwhelmed that God loves us that much. And we should rejoice on a daily basis and be looking forward with eager anticipation for the day when we will be fully and finally in his presence once and for all where there will be fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. And there will be no more sin. But between now and then, on the basis of what Christ has already accomplished, we should deeply desire to live for his glory, which we're now empowered to do. Because that's all part of his plan and his promise that his law is written on your hearts and your minds. What does that mean? It means the law is no longer there just to show us our sin. But instead it instructs us on how to live before a holy God. Just like a loving father instructs his kids on what they should do and how they should live. God instructs us not only on what brings him the greatest glory but actually on what brings us the greatest joy because those two things are the same. So how should we treat one another? How should we view marriage? What should we do with our money? Well, God instructs us on all of those kinds of things. How does he instruct us? Through his word, including the book of Hebrews. Flip forward to chapter 13, verse 1. Here's how we live for his glory. Here's what it looks like. Verse 1. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. And remember those who are in prison. Verse 4. Let marriage be held in honor among you. And let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Verse 5. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Do you see? Those are all very real, very practical commands on how to live before a holy God. But they're not grounded on guilt from sin or wrath to come. Instead, they're grounded on the fact that God said, look at verse 6. He will never leave us nor forsake us. So the Lord, my loving heavenly father, is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Do you hear what I'm saying? That because of the guilt-removing, wrath-averting work of Christ, God is for us. In absolutely everything, including working in our minds and in our hearts, that we would not only know his commands, but that we would have a passion and a desire and an ability to live for his glory because we're longing for him to come back home and get us. And we want to be found as those who are living for him while we eagerly await his return. See how that works? 
You're delighting in his finished work on the cross, which has secured your eternal redemption, your eternal inheritance. But you're living in the already, not yet. But you know what is to come. And so while we wait, we live for his glory and his honor and his praise. Not because we're afraid of him, but because we love him. That's why we obey him. That's why we live for his glory. Allow me to pray to that end. Father, I pray that you would just be making all of these connections in our hearts. Lord, that we would never get these things out of order. That we would never think that we need to obey God in order to deal with the guilt of our sin, to avert God's wrath. That we have to earn that salvation. Lord, I pray that instead we keep our eyes fixed on the cross. I pray that that would be the North Pole of our heart, that everything in us would gravitate to that reality, his sacrifice once and for all, his blood shed so that God is my God and that we are his people. And as a result of that glorious reality, that we would have a passion and a desire instructed by his word, to live for his glory as we eagerly await his return. Do that good work through your eternal spirit in our minds and in our hearts. We pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.